My name is Laura Dawn, and you're listening to episode number 16 of the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast, featuring my conversation with Navajo and Zuni elder and wisdom keeper, Belinda Ariaco. So when it comes to cultural appropriation, when someone, you know, is emulating uh, a sweat lodge or uh, a traditional ceremony that we hold sacred without understanding the origins of it or why you do certain things, um, you know, it bothers us. When you're able to get to a point where you can acknowledge that hurt has been done, then you can start to begin to have a conversation about that. You know, and how do we begin to work and to to live in more um, in a more harmonious way? Um, and cultural appreciation is when someone seeks to understand and learn about another's culture. Um, you know, in an effort to broaden their own perspective and to connect with the others cross culturally. Um, granted that you have to have permission to sometimes be in a ceremony or to be in that ritual. Um, to allow that sharing to happen. And so there's that, you know, there's that exchange um, rather than just the taking of um, those wisdoms. The way that I look at it is everything is energy. And, you know, the energy of love can heal everything. And I truly believe that. And that is really what prayer is all about is when we're able to tap into that energy of love and that frequency, um, everything is possible. So I had recorded the introduction for this episode a few days ago, but I noticed that it was keeping me up last night and it's been weighing on my mind. So I wanted to re-record this introduction, which is why you're hearing my very early morning voice right now. And it's why I'm putting this episode out a little later than I normally do. So I could share a little more of a real-time process with you, which I'll just say podcasting isn't great for, having real-time dialogue about these really complex topics like cultural appropriation, which is one of the big reasons why I'm hosting weekly rooms in Clubhouse. So if you're on that app, I'll add a link to my profile in the show notes. And the intention is to also bring in speakers that I'm interviewing here on the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast and inviting in real-time conversations and open dialogue to ask questions and to explore all the nuance that these conversations can hold. And when we start talking about nuanced topics like cultural appropriation, we just can't cover every angle in a one-hour interview. And we only touched on that as one topic among several. Belinda also shares about the wisdom teachings of walking in Hojon. She shares about the prophecy of the condor and the eagle and about healing intergenerational trauma and so much more. And I know I've, I've spoken to this before, but I don't want to be afraid to share a thought process I'm having out of fear of being canceled or attacked. Which, despite how much I encourage communication rooted in kindness, it still does happen from time to time. So I know how it feels, but I don't think we're going to move any meaningful conversation forward if we're not willing to hold space for differing viewpoints. So what I want to share might be triggering for some people to hear, but this is just an unfolding thought process and a place I'm exploring and just holding curiosity around. 
And so one of the things I've been reflecting on about this conversation, and not just from this conversation with Belinda, but the larger cultural conversation unfolding in the plant medicine space right now, is this notion of glorifying Indigenous wisdom or glorification of Indigenous cultures. And I know that some people might think that that is just like blasphemy to say. And now please don't get me wrong. I absolutely believe that Indigenous cultures hold so much wisdom. I also believe that every culture holds wisdom. And actually, that's one of the really powerful things that Belinda shares in this episode She says, culture is medicine and medicine is culture. And in an email attached to Belinda's bio, she sent me a write-up of the perspective of Native American cultures. And she said, our view of the world is based upon being a part of a larger microcosm of the natural world. The interconnectedness of our existence is based upon the mutual respect of all beings and embracing the mysticism of life. The interconnectedness includes the relationship each individual member has to its community, and this reinforces the bond between human beings and creator. The goal in life from a Diné perspective is walking through life in Hojon, living in balance and harmony. And I love this teaching of Hojon, living in balance and harmony. I mean, yes to it all. And in this interview, it's hard not to see the irony that although these cultures held this belief system of interconnectedness, both the Diné and Zuni lineages from which Belinda comes were warring tribes. And she also shares about being raised in a prejudiced household. And the only reason I feel called to speak to this irony is to bring a wider perspective here with the intention of speaking to how human we all are, no matter what culture we come from, and to avoid this tendency to overgeneralize. And I believe when we create these sort of blanket stories about entire cultures or races, we lose our humanity in those stories. And there's this great quote, and I don't know who said it, but it read, if you knew a person's whole story, many of your concrete judgments would start to crumble. And there's the full human expression in all people, in all cultures. Everyone knows the full range of human emotional experience. And human beings have been both loving and hurting other human beings for millennia. And I think And I could be wrong about this, but maybe, just maybe, our pathway towards intergenerational healing and towards equality isn't by drawing more lines in the sand between cultures, pointing to which cultures are right or wrong, but maybe it's by going within and getting right with ourselves, looking at where we, as in every single one of us, are out of alignment in our own lives and what we need to do to get back into right relationship with those around us and with ourselves. And I talk more extensively about this in episode eight titled Truth Triggers and Getting Right with Yourself. And Belinda also actually touches on this in this episode too. And I am not sharing any of this to detract from the fact that harm has been done and that indigenous cultures have been heavily mistreated. And as Belinda suggests in this conversation, we can't really move forward until we acknowledge that hurt has been done. And I think that is super valid and incredibly important. 
And I also think that acknowledgement held with respect can be the key to shift the conversation from cultural appropriation towards cultural appreciation. And I've been thinking about that a lot too lately, like specifically how we frame conversations. Maybe the conversation around cultural appropriation would look and also feel very differently if we brought people together to talk about cultural appreciation, like look at the wisdom that this culture has and this nugget of wisdom that this culture has and how we can celebrate the medicine in each culture. And you know what? Let's celebrate our similarities too. And this isn't, again, to detract from the wisdom that Belinda shares here and the wisdom she carries, really just so the opposite. So much of what she shares here is so powerful. And also want to mention that Belinda has a five-week course coming up, which I highly recommend checking out, called Heal My Sisters, focusing on healing intergenerational trauma. And she weaves in these powerful teachings of Hajon and other wisdom teachings from her culture. And I also want to remind you that you carry an enormous amount of wisdom as well. And please feel free to share that wisdom with me. I'm so curious about how you're also thinking about these conversations. You can always email me your thoughts at support at livefreelauraD.com as long as they're delivered with kindness and with an open mind and an open heart. I also have quite a few links of resources mentioned in this episode that I'll include in the show notes, and they're also on this episode page on my website, livefreelauraD.com, where you can also find links to my free music playlist for psychedelic journeys and beyond, and my free eight-day microdosing course. And I'll just briefly mention, I also have my three-month microdosing mastermind program coming up this summer, June, July, August, and you can also find details for that on my website. And in every episode, I always feature a different musician. And in this episode, I share music from a dear friend, Ali Maya, whose music has touched my life so profoundly and so deeply. And I actually share two of her songs in this episode. Love is the Medicine offers a little interlude. And then I share her powerful song called Waters of Forgiveness. That really just feels like a good song to end this episode on. And lastly, before we dive in, I just want to share that I recorded this interview over six months ago. And the reason I hadn't released it yet was because it was super early days of me figuring all of this podcasting stuff out. I was using a different mic. I was recording on a different app. And my voice kind of just a little bit sounds like Mickey Mouse. And my audio guy has made it sound much better, but there was some big audio hurdles we had to overcome to release this episode. And it was also early days of me figuring out how to interview people, which, you know, I'm still figuring it out. And you know what, you guys, it's just a little harder than it looks. All right, you guys, thank you so much for listening to this extensive introduction. And without any further ado, here is my intriguing conversation with Belinda Ariaco. I'd love to start by inviting you to speak to or honor the people, lineages, or even places from which you come that have planted seeds of wisdom within you. Sure. Um, first of all, before I get started, I do want to do a land acknowledgement. I, I currently live in the Phoenix metropolitan area, and I do want to acknowledge the um, people, the original people of this land, which are the Huhukam 
and the Otam people. They are um, known in English as the Pima and the Papago people. And I want to honor their ancestors of, of this land, you know, for allowing us to, allowing me to be here um, and allowing for so many to be here as well. Um, in addition, I want to also thank all of my ancestors from my Diné lineage, my um, mother's lineage, and then my father's lineage, the Ashiwi people. Um, Diné means the people, and the Ashiwi means the skinned ones, because in their original teachings of where they came from, um, that was what they were known as. And so I want to acknowledge, acknowledge both of those lineages. Um, and I acknowledge just for, um, the, you know, interests, um, I acknowledge my mother's lineage first because um, both um, my lineages are matrilinear societies, and meaning that a lot of who we are and who we identify ourselves as um, comes through our mother's side. And so it's always appropriate to acknowledge that lineage um, and where we come from. So I want to acknowledge that. And I am born for the Hana'atmi people, which is the one who walks around. There are four major or four primary um, clans that come from the Dene people. And this clan that I belong to is one of the original clans. Um, and my mother's, my grandparents on my mother's side are from the Black Sheep um, clan. And then I acknowledge my father and my father's um, parents, which are from the um, Eshiwi or the Nashteje people. And so that is how I identify myself with as a Dene woman. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious to know a little bit more about the Dene and Zuni lineages. Um, how do these lineages differ in their worldviews? And what are some of the similarities that they have? Um, if you go back in history, the um, the Dene and the uh, Zuni people never, <laughs> from my understanding, they never really got along. Um, the Dene people were always seen as warriors and people that were um, raiders, I guess, is the way that most people identify them with. But they never really got along with one another, and they live close proximity geographically to one another. Um, my fa- my mother's people, um, there are, well, first of all, let me back up a little bit. In, in the United States, there are 573 Native American tribes throughout the United States. And um, the Diné people are the largest um, population of Native American people. There are over 300,000 tribal members. Um, when I say tribal members, is every single tribe individual that belongs to a tribe has to be enrolled in that tribe and be identified. Um, and that's where we come up with the, the, the little over 300,000 um, uh, population for the Diné people. In terms of um, the cultures themselves, they are completely opposite of one another. Um, and when I say that, I'll take an example um, in the Diné culture, when we talk about um, the, the dying process or death, it is seen as something that's very taboo. Um, and in my father's language, the Zuni people, it is something that is embraced. Um, and it's very beautiful because in the Zuni culture, they still um, 
do the old-fashioned wakes where they'll bring the body home and they'll prepare it and family will come to visit um, and pay their respects for the evening. And then there's a lot of ritual and ceremony that goes along with that um, when a person is actually laid to rest. And so that is an example of it. Um, in addition, another example um, is um, hunting. Um, in the Diné culture, it's primarily the men that will go out and do the hunting, um, whereas in the Zuni culture, um, it's somewhat similar, but there are certain, um, for instance, in the Navajo culture, if you're hunting for deer, um, only the men can do that. And the reason why they, they allow the men only to hunt in a Diné culture is because they say that the energy and the medicine that comes from a deer is very strong and that a female can't handle it. Um, and it will cause one to go crazy. That's that's kind of the, the story that goes behind that. Whereas in the Zuni culture, um, they're more open to um, allowing people to go along, women to go along. Um, not necessarily to actually do the hunting, but they'll actually be involved in the preparation. And the other thing that happens is with um, the trophies that come from them. You know, usually they have people that will um, cut the heads off and make them as trophies. Um, in the Zuni culture, when we do our winter ceremonies, one of the things that happens um, when you walk into, it's a ceremony called Shalako, and it's part of the winter solstice ceremony. When you walk into a home that is a Shalako house, they'll have the heads of the deer and the buffalo and the antelope all on the walls, and they'll dress the animals up in, in jewelry. So they'll have earrings, they'll have necklaces on, and it's, it's really just a beautiful um, place to 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 be and and what that is is acknowledging the um, the sacrifice of the animal but also um, to acknowledge it as a as a being you know and honoring it for giving its life um, so it, the cultures are very different well these are such divided times and I would like to embark uh, through a little bit of taboo territory mm -hmm. around this conversation that feels um, highly divided and so reactive. And so I'm curious to get some wisdom and perspective from you on this. You know, there's such a big conversation unfolding around race and equality and cultural appropriation and colonization. And I'm curious if how you feel about this movement of sort of glorifying indigenous cultures and mm -hmm just wanting to find more common ground to stand on. And it seems like the conversations are becoming so much more and more polarized and divided. And yet, even from hearing you speak, it seems like there was warring amongst tribes and not everyone agreed on everything. And there was mm -hmm. many differences. Right. And so I'm, I'm curious for you to just speak to this from, from your perspective. You know, um, when we, it's interesting you talk about cultural appropriation. I was just doing a talk a couple of weeks ago on this particular topic and as it relates to psychedelics. And, um, you know, first of all, let's kind of go back and kind of define what cultural appropriation is, because I'm not sure that people really understand the definition of what cultural appropriation is and kind of the historical background that relates to that. And then I want to talk a little bit about cultural appreciation and what that means. 
Um, you know, when we talk about cultural appropriation, it's really about um, taking a symbol or a cultural practice out of its original context. And part of that taking um, is taking of the intellectual property from which it originated from. And so when we talk about it in the context of Native American wisdom and culture, um, you know, you lose the essence and the meaning behind the original teachings. Um, and wisdom implies that it's um, gone through this um, uh, maturation, if you will, um, through generations to generations, because a lot of the wisdom that is carried in indigenous cultures is passed down orally. There are no books that, um, you know, are written on it. There are books that are written by anthropologists that either, you know, lived among the people to study them for a small brief period of time. And then it, then it's the books are, are related to their perspective on how they, they see things. Um, and, you know, one of the things that's really interesting about um, indigenous culture and indigenous wisdom is we have in the United States a standard legal framework in which we talk about and we frame intellectual properties around, you know, so we have, you know, copyright laws, we have trademarks, um, but there is really nothing that really speaks to the framework when it comes to indigenous wisdoms and cultures um, that can be applied to it. Um, and really, who owns the who owns the the knowledge and the wisdom that has been passed down from generation to generation? Um, and I did a little bit of research, and I understand that there is a um, an inter international movement that's really trying to come up with some not necessarily legal documents, but some guiding principles, um, so that you know some of these. Um, intellectual cultures and wisdom can be captured and protected in a way that um, keeps them safe and in, of integrity. And um, from my understanding, this started back in 2000, and they're, um, from my understanding, they're really focusing on uh, intellectual properties that relate to cultural wisdoms, that relate to um, DNA of indigenous people. Um, and this framework is um, an organization that's an international organization. Um, and for the first time, one of the things that's different about this organization is you actually see the involvement of indigenous um, people um, that are really making a voice and saying, this is what we think will work for everybody. Um, and when you look um, around the globe, that's one of the biggest, I, I think one of the biggest battles is that typically the people that are the holders of these wisdoms and ancient knowledges are not always the ones that are brought to the table to have a seat at the table to create these frameworks or create these policies that then get implemented. Um, which brings me to the other point that I wanted to talk a little bit, or the concept is really about cultural appreciation. Um, and cultural appreciation is when someone seeks to understand and learn about another's culture um, you know, in an effort to broaden their own perspective and to connect with the others cross-culturally. Um, granted that you have to have permission to sometimes be in a ceremony or to be in that ritual um, to allow that sharing to happen. And so there's that, you know, there's that exchange um, rather than just the taking of um, those wisdoms. And, you know, 
to 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 dive into this topic a little bit deeper, we got to really look back at our share um, history as Americans. You know, if you look back in American history, um, you know, have the rivals of the Europeans um, in their in, in in their mind when they came to the United States, they were operating under the premise of the doctrine of a sco- of discovery. And for those folks that are listening, if you don't know what the doctrine of discovery is, I would suggest you take some time to understand that because that was kind of the impetus behind how our our country was created. And for Native American people, um, that gave the Europeans justification to take our ancestral homes, homelands that we all knew, um, you know, where we got our medicines from, where we made that connection with, you know, Pachamama with the earth. Um, and then, you know, by the time you get into the 1800s and even into the 1900s, you have the creation of um, U.S. policies that place Native American people on reservations. Um, our children were forced into boarding schools at a very young age where they were abused. Um, and they were not allowed to speak their native language, um, nor look, um, nor were they allowed to actually, um, you know, express themselves as, as Native American people. Um, you know, my mom was uh, one of those children that was put in a boarding school. And so there's some implications that go along with it. And so when we came in, when we came into her life, you know, she never really taught us our Navajo Diné language because she was afraid that she was going to, we were going to get our mouths washed out with soap or we were going to get punished for speaking our, our language. And so, you know, there's a lot of trauma, um, intergenerational trauma that goes along with it. And I don't know that you, if you know this or not, Laura, but, um, the Native Americans were not um, allowed to vote until around 1924. And this was the passage of the Indian Civilization or um, Citizen Act. And in some states, we were still also forbidden to vote, and that didn't um, get resolved until 1965 under the um, Voting Rights Act. And so, you know, there's a lot of history. Um, and so when it comes to cultural appropriation, when someone you know, is emulating uh, a sweat lodge or uh, a traditional ceremony that we hold sacred without understanding the origins of it or why you do certain things, um, you know, it bothers us. It, it raises that anger like, you know, you're, you've, you've taken everything from us and now you're going to go down that road to take that culture, um, those cultural aspects, those religious practices away from us. You know, and that's kind of why there's a lot of resistance um, for Native American people that live on Turtle Island. Um, And, you know, I remember recall someone once saying to me, culture is medicine and medicine is culture. And I think for me, that really helped to define and put things in, in context around this particular topic. And I'm just curious, though, to bring in this perspective of zooming out and also looking at the way that other cultures have been doing this to other cultures for so many years. And 
I'm just curious about how we can move forward in a way that finds um, true equality and unity. When we look at other cultures like the Aztecs or the Mongolian culture, some African empires, even the Hawaiian cultures, there was a certain level of cultures trying to take over other cultures. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. so it seems to me that humans have been hurting other humans for far too long. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious about what your perspective is on how the movements are unfolding right now around these conversations. And if you believe that this is helping, like is, is racial trauma perpetuating more racial trauma right now, or is what's unfolding and the polarization that we're um, seeing, is this in your perspective necessary to mend the divide between people on this planet right now? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I I think it is. Um, you know, one of the things I, I think that happens when this um, this happens between different groups of people, I think one of the biggest things that does not happen is the acknowledgement of these particular crises or events or um, you know uh, genocide. Um, and I know that for you know speaking from a Native American perspective. One of the things that's always frustrated me um, is our government has never acknowledged what has happened to Native American people, Um, you know, and that's not only Native Americans, it's to Native Hawaiians, it's to other people, you know, I think about World War II, you know, when Japanese were put in internment camps, And our government actually, you know, try to uh, make amends with that by compensating, you know, some of these Japanese Americans um, and actually coming out with, um, you know, news release, et cetera, that um, apologize for those types of events. And so I think that's one of the things that helps when you're able to get to a point where you can acknowledge that hurt has been done then you can start to begin to have a conversation about that, you know, and how do we begin to work and to, to live in more, um, in a more harmonious way and, and care for each other. And, you know, unfortunately or fortunately in these times that we're going through right now, I think it's making people realize that we need each other. And there's this interconnectedness that we've forgotten about as a, as a human race. And so it's really um, causing us to really be concerned about our neighbors, you know, which is something that was fundamental to to just being human, you know, and making sure that your your neighbor was okay to check on the elders in your community that, you know, are, are living at home by themselves and just making sure that they have what they need to get through things. Um, and so it's really causing us as human beings to get out of our minds and get into our hearts. You know, an elder once told me that she said the longest journey, and she was probably close to 90-something years old, she said the longest journey that we'll ever have to make is traveling from our minds into our heart, and that's only 18 inches away. And I truly believe that she knew what she was talking about. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. I've heard that before. I love that saying. Mm-hmm. And I, I really do hold this prayer that one day the governments can acknowledge the wrongs that have been committed amongst so many people mm-hmm. and that real planetary healing can happen. And I'm just seeing so much division and reactivity and rage that I have been really questioning, like, is there a better way to bring healing towards the the conversations that are happening that are just so hurtful Mm -hmm. you know one of the one of the other things that this um, relates to is um you know just this whole transition that we're having to go through at this particular time and this particular time of change is something that many of our indigenous ancestors spoke of and there is a prophecy called the prophecy of the eagle and the condor i don't know if you've ever heard of this particular prophecy Um, But the prophecy uh, essentially says that the coming together of North, the people of the North, which is typically referred to as Turtle Island, which represents the mind, and the South, um, the people of the South, which is really the heart island, which represents the heart center. When these people come together, um, then humanity can begin to heal. And in the um, the Kitchen traditions, which are the Inca people, there's a there's a term called Pachacuti, which means the turning of the earth or turning of the soil. And this particular turning really re- refers to um, in the Pachacuti Mesa traditions. It refers to the period of change and the great cosmic turning. Um, and according to the prophecies, it's a time when we all are going to be going through this great remembering. Um, and, you know, some of the features of this particular event include, you know, extraordinary planetary crisis and upheaval, which is, you know, that's what we're going through right now. Um, it's also tied to the effects of alienation and separation and deep amnesia and people forgetting, you know, who they are and what they came to this earth for. And it's really causing us to reawaken to ourselves. Um, And it's also remembering that this is a time of reuniting humanity, you know, and all ancestry lineages and traditions um, and to restore um, humankind for um, to save the planet, to resave Mother Earth, we call her Nastashima, which is Mother Earth, um, and and so you know to to break this illusion of a separation, um, and so that's really the the teachings behind this, and um, many of us have been taught that the answer to life is outside of ourselves, you know. Um, you know, I went to, grew up on a reservation. I went to college. Um, I went to, you know, started working for a big um, investor-owned utility and spent 26 years of my life doing that. Um, and then when I finally had the opportunity to retire, I took that. And what I realize now is that that, that wasn't the truth. That's not um, where you find happiness. And it really started um, to get me thinking about what is it and what is my purpose on this earth, you know, from a spiritual and a soul level perspective. And, you know, when we go through these types of experiences that we're all going through right now, um, you know, and, you know, with, with the Diné people, we are one of the populations that's getting really hit hard with this, with this virus and, and for a lot of reasons. 
Um, and so it really teaches us to really find that resilience within ourselves and, you know, to bounce back and again to um, figure out how we can live on this earth together. So what do you say to the social justice warriors who really are fighting for a cause of equality, but they're coming from a very angry place and they're hurling more hate towards other people who don't believe what they believe? What do you say mm-hmm. to those people? I think, you know, when I when I look at that, because I was there too um, at a young age, I I reflect back on those times when I was angry and what I was angry about. And a lot of times um, for individuals, and again, I'm coming from more of my own personal experience, when I look back and reflect back on those experiences, that anger was really hurt that I was trying to deal with. And, you know, for a lot of these, uh, for individuals that are coming from a place of anger, rather than, than stopping and saying, you know, what, where's this anger coming from? And for me, a lot of the anger and the bitterness that I had against non-Native people was really um, intergenerational trauma, you know, and the experiences that my ancestors had to go through. And I never um, realized and recognized that, you know, intergenerational trauma is something that the next generation can inherit. And if we don't take the time to heal that, um, then we just continue to perpetuate that type of energy. And so what was the process of, of healing that you went through? And then what was that transmuted into the way, how did you change the way you showed up in the world? (laughs) Um, you know, for me, my, my journey, um, to that path was um, when I was working for the the investor-owned utility, um, one of the things that happened to me was I was working seven days a week, you know, 10, 12 hours a day. And it got to a point where my job got really stressful. And then I was um, diagnosed with systemic lupus and I was in, um, I got very ill and it took me to a place where essentially being a person that was very independent, getting my feet knocked out from under me. And then I really had to evaluate my priorities in my life. Um, and when I, when I went through that experience, a lot of this inner healing that I needed to do um, started to surface. And as I, you know, as I become older, I'm still doing with that. It's it's a lifelong journey that we all have to go through um, to really look at the things that make us feel uncomfortable, um, you know. And so what that looked like for me is, you know, um, I try to, you know, do a lot of counseling, um, you know, and really look at the dysfunction that I grew up with as a child, because that is a place that we come from. Um, you know, and really to take a look at how we are all socialized, um, because a lot of times we bring that into our current life. And so if we were raised to um, be prejudiced against another race, we bring that into our relationships with other people. And so for me, what I recognize, even just a, a few months ago, you know, when this whole issue about Black Lives Matters um, came up and, you know, I'm sitting at home with my mom and my mom's watching TV and, you know, she's, 
you know, I could just hear the TV going in the background and, you know, Black Lives Matter. And then I, my mom started to say, you know, well, why don't these people, if they're not happy here, why don't they just go home? And I started to think about that. And it was like, and it dawned on me that, wow, this is where I was getting it from. It, again, it was the way that I was socialized um, in my own family. And then from my father's perspective, um, when we go back into the 1800s and when colonial, um, you know, the Spaniards came over and went through the different pueblos in New Mexico, um, in history, they talk about a black moor. His name was Esteban. And when Esteban showed up in one of the Zuni villages, um, from my understanding, there's always, you know, two sides of the story and then there's the absolute truth. Um, and not being on in, in any one of those places, I don't know what the truth is, but what ended up happening was um, the Zuni people up to that point had never seen a black man, um, you know, and, and he was coming with the Jesuits who were the ones that were actually creating the churches and, um, you know, demanding things and the people, the Zuni people didn't feel that, you know, they needed to um, oblige him. And, and so they ended up killing him. And as I was growing up, even when I went to college, I could, you know, still hear my father's voice and my uncle's voice saying, you know, when you come home, don't bring back home a black one. And, you know, I was kind of thought that was just kind of funny, you know. And um, as I started to be to thinking about this and I thought, you know, that's really not a very good way to to bring up a child with that kind of um um, outlook on life, you know, and I really had to sit with that. And I really had to, um, I have a, a Mesa a sacred altar that I use and I had to sit with that one and I had to go inside and saying, okay, now I understand where that's coming from and how do I transmute that energy and give it back to the earth to allow it to, um, transform and transmutate into good energy of love, of those types of things. And so that's kind of what it looked like for me um, to kind of heal that wound that was that had been there for generations. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because it seems to be that part of the conversation right now is um, only white people can be prejudiced. And even just hearing you say that, it was like, yeah. wow, you know, anyone can be raised prejudiced. It doesn't matter the color of your skin or what cultural background you have. And I listened to this amazing podcast episode um, on the Rebel Wisdom podcast called Identity and Empathy with Aisha Akandi. And mm -hmm. she also mentions this and that if we're really looking at true equality, we really need to go beyond this, you know, mm -hmm. this division of skin color. And I, I really do hold the prayer that we someday get there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and I think, you know, one of the hardest things for us as human beings is to really sit in that discomfort um, and really start asking ourselves, where is this coming from? Um, you know, and so if we have a dislike for another person, you know, what is it that you don't like about that person? And then the other part of that, that question and that um, review is also then to ask yourself, is that the way that I look at myself? Love is the medicine. Love is the medicine.
So the only things that we have control of are those things, our thoughts, our feelings. You know, we can't um, change the way another person perceives us, but we need to start with ourselves first. And I, I truly believe that when we start to do that healing within ourselves, then in, you know, we emulate that, then people start to notice that, hey, wow, they, you know, and to also teach others, you know, that that's not really. And so with myself, um, you know, when I I'm really try to be careful about the way that I describe people, you know, when I'm with my granddaughter, you know, we're out getting an ice cream cone or something, you know, and not to put color on people, you know, that if there's a little boy having a, you know, an ice cream and she wants that particular kind to say, oh, that little boy's got, you know, such and such. And instead of saying the black little boy has, you know, a certain kind of ice cream cone. Um, and really just trying to be mindful about that. And sometimes it just takes us as, as adults to just stop and look at what we're saying and what we're doing and be careful of our actions. And so, you know, to kind of sum up this piece, I think to me, the way that I look at it is everything is energy. And, you know, the energy of love can heal everything. And I truly believe that. And that is really what prayer is all about is when we're able to tap into that energy of love and that frequency um everything is possible mm, yes i agree thank you for sharing that mm -hmm. i'd like to shift gears and before i do i have one more question that mm -hmm. relates to cultural appropriation and i love the way that you said cultural appreciation because it was only 3 days ago that i was sitting down having a conversation with somebody who said that and mm -hmm. said wow, what if instead of the words that we're using around taking and appropriating, what if we started framing the conversation about how much we appreciate all these other cultures? Mm -hmm. And it really struck me as this, as it dawned on me that our words are powerful. The way that we frame the narrative is so powerful. And it also will change the way that we approach the conversation and the way that we find common ground. Absolutely. And so I, I really wanted to just highlight that. And I'm curious if you have the perspective that certain plants belong to certain cultures. What is your perspective on specific plants and the usage of some plants? And what if some people aren't claiming to be doing it like a traditional culture? Um, mm -hmm. So what's your perspective on that particular topic? Um, you know, with, um, I guess my viewpoint about plants in general is that they are here to heal humanity. Um, but what a lot of people, again, I think, fail to understand is that a lot of Native American people and indigenous people were placed on this earth for the sole purpose of being the stewards of these plants. And so they're the protectors, they're the voice for you know, I, I think of Grandma Aggie, you know, she's an elder that I know. She always used to say that she's the voice for the voiceless. And, um, you know, uh, we as indigenous people um, around, the, around the globe that use these plant medicines, um, I, I differentiate, you know, when people talk about psychedelics and ethnogens, I, I don't really like those words. To me, they're sacred plant medicines. They're here to heal us. 
And, um, you know, as indigenous people, we are the ones that are carrier of the wisdom of these plants. We know the songs, we know the prayers that go along with them to, um, if you will, to amplify that highest energy for healing. Um, And that's what people forget about. And so um, when they use these sacred plant medicines, you know, I always cringe when people say, you know, they're, they're drugs or you know, I'm going to go out and get high or, you know, those kinds of things. To me, that's in, that's disrespect for something that is so sacred. Um, and I think when people can start to demonstrate that they um, understand that um, reverence for these plants, I think, you know, people of indigenous nature or, um, you know, Native American traditions will start to see things in a different light. Um, You know, typically when we use um, plants for healing, um, you know, the the use of the plant is really sitting in prayer. So if, you know, um, I'm talking to somebody and they say they want to, you know, they're having some health issues and, you know, I have plants in mind that I can use um, before I even go out and, and start to collect and harvest these plants. I pray for the person and I ask for guidance for what it is that they need. And then when it comes to the harvesting, I talk to the plants. I I tell them why I need, need, you know, their medicine um, to heal this person because, you know, X, Y, and Z. And and then I give something back in return, you know, which is usually an offering of um, cornmeal or tobacco. Um, In the Andean traditions of um, South America, there's a term called Aini, A-Y-N-I, and Aini means sacred reciprocity. And what that really means is today for me, tomorrow for you. And so it's always this exchange back and forth and caring for one another. And so, you know, I, I look at things in a different light. Um, but also, you know, from a from the standpoint of, of these sacred plant medicines, we also need to acknowledge that there's not an endless supply of them, um, you know, to help everyone. You know, we got to allow for them to to grow and to nurture and to mature before we start taking, you know. And um, a great example of that is um, that comes to mind is MDMA. And MDMA is actually comes from the the oils from a sassafras tree, and I believe in the Pacific, if I'm not mistaken, um, where they harvest a lot of the. They've essentially cut down the whole forest um, just to make these particular medicines, and that is definitely not what we want. And so we've got to have a meeting of minds and saying what's going to work best, rather than trying to you know take and consume it all at one time. Mm -hmm. Bringing the awareness of ceremonial use and the Mm -hmm. ceremonial aspect and the sacredness of the container is so important. One of the things that I find as well is that a lot of young people, because most of them are younger than I am, um, you know, one of the things that I find is that they use these sacred plant medicines weekend after weekend after weekend. And what they do not do is they don't take the time to integrate those experiences and the teachings that these plants are trying to give them. You know, they're they're, they're looking for an easy fix to fix their problem when a lot of it is that we have to do our own inner work as well, as you well know. Yep, integration is so important. 
So thank you for speaking to that. Mm-hmm. I like this notion that the stories and the narratives that we collectively weave create our reality. Mm-hmm. That it, they act as sort of like the scaffolding that from which reality is built upon. And you spoke to this narrative around the prophecy of the condor and the eagle. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know if you're familiar with Charles Eisenstein's work, but as he so succinctly put it once, uh, he says, you know, it really in order to shape this future that we want to see a future more beautiful than our hearts know is possible, that we must mm-hmm. become the storytellers of a new world. Mm-hmm. And so I strongly believe that. Yeah, that mm-hmm. is so true. What do you think is an empowering story that people can adopt and embody about the breakdown that is happening all around us right now, especially when I see so many people are overwhelmed and confused and times are so chaotic and so many people feel so disheartened about what's happening on the planet right now. Mm-hmm. What's what's a narrative that people could internalize to help us get through this time with more strength and resilience? Mm-hmm. You know, re- resilience is really a, a, a powerful word, and that's what really makes me think about. Um, when I think of resilience, I think of my ancestors. And we all at this particular time um, on this planet, we all come from lineages of very strong people. Um, otherwise, we wouldn't be here. Um, And I truly believe that, Um, you know, resilience is really the ability to identify and use ourselves and others, whether that's our families, our communities, um, to embrace um, the present moment. And I think when you can come away from, um, you know, the the chaos that is going going on around us, the crises that we're having to deal with, um, you know, and to be focused on the present moment, it helps us to get through the the managing the tasks of of daily living. For example, you know, uh, Gabor Mate is is someone when he talks about resilience, he talks about in a way that um, as a social um, function and it being more than just surviving. Um, from our experiences and really being able to figure out how to adapt to things. And, you know, part of the, 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 the resilience piece is also really taking a look about how we are socialized, which we talked about a little bit, you know, um, you know, and being able to listen to that. Um, and what, what I think about when I think of resilience in our Diné culture, there's a word called hojon. Hojon means to, um, is beauty and balance. Um, but it's part of a much more bigger concept than, than just, you know, beauty and balance. It, it actually is, um, Hojon is actually short for Hojon, uh, which means uh, Navajo is very difficult to translate into English, but the essence of it is that old age walking the trail of beauty or according to old age may it be perfect and so you're looking that is your ultimate goal um and that is my ultimate goal as a as a Deneb person um is to live life to its fullest but to always try to be in that um present moment 
Um, you know, in a lot of our cultural teachings and our traditional healings, they say that when we get too far ahead of ourselves and we start focusing too much about tomorrow, next year, 10 years from now, or we focus too much in, in the past and what hurt we have gone through, um, it, it gets us out of balance. And that's when we create dis-ease in ourselves. And so the whole idea is to really come back to this present moment. And sometimes when there's so much going on around us, sometimes if we can just, you know, take a breath, you know, because when we're in the midst of crisis and trauma, um, we forget to breathe. And that is so um, important to us. And when we are able to just kind of be in just, you know, that those few seconds, to take that few seconds um, to be in that experience, it helps us to reconnect in our in our mind, so that then we can clear our minds to make the right decisions for us. Um, the other thing about this this word hajon um, is that we are coming to a place. Um, I strongly believe that it's no longer about me; it's about we, you know. And how do we move through this collectively um, as as a human race? When I first met you, Belinda, in Costa Rica for the mm-hmm. Thank You Plant Medicine uh, panel, your presence really struck me, actually. I had this very palpable sense from you that you were grounded and centered, but also so strong. And I really appreciated that about you. And then when I heard you speak on the panel and the wisdom that you shared, you just have a very grounded approach to navigating through this life. And that's something that I really admire about you because it feels like the chaos is tossing and turning so many people off center, you know, so this notion and linking this concept and this story, the narrative around Jean, is that how you say it? Yeah. Yes. Jean. You know, I think the other part of that, too, is um, if we can come and look at life as um, experiences that are here to teach us um, about ourselves, um, even though we might go through good times, we might go through happy times, but we also may go through very difficult times. And in the difficult times, there's always, I always believe that there's a gift um, to that difficulty that we need to learn for ourselves. Um, you know, I, I read a lot of um, and I listen to a lot of um, podcasts and, and training from Carolyn Miss, and I love her work because she really forces you to push yourself. And one of the things that I think about is she says, you know, when we um, are brought into this physical realm, um, we are brought in as spirit, and that is kind of the, the is somewhat similar to what the Navajo people and the Diné people we believe is that you still are in spirit form, and so prior to your incarnation into this physical place is that um, you know we are shared, and when we are sitting there with the masters, you know, creating what our life will look like, you know, they'll have a drawn out plan that, okay, this person's going to go through this, that, and the other. Um, and we, we're sitting right there next to them, planning this out. And when we come into this physical lifetime, what happens is the, those, those memories that we have of what our plan of our life is to be get shattered into 10 million pieces. And that is, uh, I guess, a representation of what happens to our soul. And so then we go through our whole life picking up these fragments of learning about grief, learning about love, 
learning about happiness. And we start to pull ourselves back together again. And so that's one of the one of the analogies and one of the things that always comes to my mind when I talk about this particular subject. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. According to the condor and eagle prophecy, uh, how long do you think this time of extreme separation and chaos and collapse will will continue for? And does the prophecy talk about the other side of what it's going to look like on the other side? (laughs) It doesn't really talk about what it it looks like on the other side. If you can recall back in 2012 when the Mayan calendar ended and everybody was thinking, oh, God, the world's going to end. But it was just a continuation of a cycle. And um, that was the end of the 500 cycle, which is part of this um, Pachikuti, turning of the earth cycle, and it's a beginning of a new cycle. Um, so you can look at it from that perspective. The other perspective, I guess, that you know I want to bring in is also the perspective of the dimensions. You know, so the old way of doing things was really functioning in that third dimension, where it's really the physical um, laborious types of things where we, when you started getting into the fourth, fourth dimension um, and the fifth dimension and higher, we start moving to more of an energetic perspective. Um, And when you can come from a mindset that our bodies are like um, made up of magnetics and electrical energy. um, And, and these were old teachings that ancient people knew the, the, um, the Egyptians, you know, the people like the Anunnaki, you know, all of the ancient beings that were here way before us, that was the knowledge that they carried, and we've forgotten about that. And to me, it's an opportunity to um, reinvigorate these wisdoms and these teachings and to apply them um, where they may where they may fit um, into this time that we are in. We are creators of our own destiny, and how we envision that is really up to us, I believe. Mm -hmm. What's the vision that you're holding for humanity? One of the things that I envision is, you know, a coming together of humanity as one global and cosmic family. You know, um, many indigenous, this is not just... uh, a world issue, um, a global issue. Um, there are implications for our, our cosmic realm as well. And, you know, and we need to also consider that. Um, and what I hope for is a brighter future for our children and our grandchildren for the next seven generations. Um, and I think if we can come together as human beings to evolve to a point where we look at things through the lens of everything being sacred and treating it as such, I think it'll um, make a lot of strides in, in where we are right now. Um, I think my, my biggest concern is that um, if we don't change, what are the repercussions of that? Um, mm-hmm. and, and to me, it, 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 it is very bleak when, you, when we don't do anything and we continue to go through this um, these differences of understanding and not understanding each other um, that I worry about, you know, because I don't want my grandchildren to be in a place where they are not welcome. 
You know, I want them to be in a place where their voice is just as important as the next person, you know, mm -hmm. and they feel equal in, in a part of that, um, a society that embraces them. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that. I hold that vision too. Mm -hmm. Where we could live in a world where equality is real. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think one of the biggest ways that people can get to that is, um, I think, you know, we have all gone to a place where we've allowed our ego to control our lives. And we really need to, to do our own inner healing and allow ourselves to remember who we are as divine human beings. And when we can come from that place, you know, it helps to, uh, and we, we show that in our communities, in our inner circles, um, that, that just kind of ripples out, you know, around the globe. Mm -hmm. I just really appreciate you, Belinda. Thank you so much, Laura, for having the opportunity to, to come and speak. Hi, friends. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode of the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast. If you've been enjoying the show, I would so appreciate it if you could subscribe or share it with a friend or leave me a review on iTunes. If you'd like to be in touch with me, please feel free to reach out through my website, livefreelauraD.com, where you can also swipe your free eight-hour music playlist for psychedelic journeys and beyond, or my free eight-day microdosing course. As I mentioned, I also have my three-month microdosing mastermind program coming up, and I'm also on Clubhouse at Live Free Laura D. You can also send me a message or connect with me on Instagram at livefreelauraD. I'm going to leave you with this song by Ali Maya called Waters of Forgiveness. Once again, I'm Laura Dawn, and this is the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast. Until next time. May the waters of forgiveness wash over you. May the flame of purity burn your soul free. May the winds of grace blow away all that does not serve. Be strong beneath your feet and guide your steps into the light. Remember why you came here—the seed of light that was planted in your soul.
earth be strong beneath our feet and guide our steps into.